2 Corinthians 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, Yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for. That you be made complete. For this reason I am writing these things while absent. So that when present I need not use severity. In accordance with the authority. Which the Lord gave me for building up. And not for tearing down. Finally brethren rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace. Will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Father, for the the pretty weather we've had lately. We thank you, Father, for the, uh, the good day we had this past Sunday. God, we thank you for the privilege of gathering again tonight. God, we thank you for the, the letter to Second Corinthians and um, the things that we've seen there. And God, we confess that we are not better people than the Corinthians. And it's quite possible for us to fall into errors as they did. So God, we ask for your help and we pray that you would... Show us mercy and um, keep us, God, from straying away from you and into um, things that seem like good ideas, um, as well as straying into sin. Father, we pray that love to Christ would constrain us, as Paul speaks of it, constraining him. God, help us to to keep our hearts fixed on Him and to stir the the flame of of our hearts' love toward Him. We don't want to be cool and indifferent. And we don't want to be lukewarm. God, we pray that You would help us to, to know, not just what we read, but God, to know 
um, the, your love toward us and that that would result in, in a growing love towards you and a growing affection towards you. God, we pray that love to Christ would crowd out all pretenders to his throne. That there would not be room for lesser loves. God, we pray that as Paul writes here about the love of God and the peace of God being with the Corinthians, that your love and peace would be with us experientially, that we would be aware of your blessing toward us and that we would live in a way that invites that blessing. Not that we, we merit it, but God, that we don't live contrary to to you and to your commands and that we seek the things that please you. God, help us as we look at these last few verses tonight. We pray that you would speak to us from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are coming to the last verses here tonight, verses 11 through 14. And as we um, conclude, I, I wanted to remind you that the city of Corinth was in many ways similar to our Western culture. It was a fairly young city. The population was made up of a lot of freed slaves and former soldiers. There were a lot of entrepreneurs and there was also a substantial Jewish community there. And there were a lot of rags to riches story. There were a lot of people that had come from these backgrounds that would not have lent themselves to having social status or money. And suddenly they do. And they didn't want to turn loose of those things. Alongside the prosperity, vice also thrived in Corinth. Vice was so rampant in Corinth that in the Greek language to Corinthianize uh, was a word that meant basically to hire a prostitute. So those things kind of went hand in hand. Um, and a lot of the culture had seeped into the church. The people, many of the people had come to Christ, but um, false teachers have come and, and preached kind of a health and wealth gospel. And the idea of keeping status and wealth and Jesus sounded mighty good. And hearing that sometimes... Christianity might mean suffering didn't sound so good. And then they looked at Paul and Paul suffered a lot. And the false teachers questioned whether he could really even be an apostle suffering as he did. And so Paul has answered those questions again and again. Much of chapters 10 through 13, almost all of chapters 10 through 13 are a final warning to the false teachers. So he and the, the Corinthians who have not repented. He writes to the entire body, but in those last chapters, his emphasis is upon those who have yet to repent. And he's calling them to repent. I'm about to come. This will be my last visit, my third visit. And I don't want to come and be severe. Repent. That's been kind of the tone of the last chapters. And the tone has kind of grown in intensity as we come to the last, you know, through those chapters. And now, as suddenly as the tone shifted from chapter 9 to chapter 10, as, as he shifts audiences a bit, it shifts again in verse 11. And after warning them and warning them and warning them, the conclusion 
his, his salutation, not salutation, but uh, uh, his goodbye. <laughs> he's, he's signing off of his letter. It's surprisingly warm and hopeful again. The conclusion consists of a series of admonitions, greetings, and benedictions. And we'll look at them like that. So first, the admonitions, which we find in verse 11. Before we jump right into the admonitions, though, do note that he begins his conclusion by addressing the Corinthians again as brethren, brothers, brothers and sisters, we could say. He's done this previously in chapter 1, verse 8, and in chapter 8, verse 1. But then he gets to chapters 10 through 13, where he's again addressing primarily this group of people who've been unrepentant. But now, brethren, by using this term, he's addressing the Corinthians as members of the family of God and of the body of Christ. He hopes that this term applies to them all. Whether this term applies to them all will be seen by how they respond to these commands that he's about to give. And to the letter. The, the commands that he gives. The conclusion is in a sense a summation of the letter. It, it's not disconnected from the letter. It's not mere formality to say, you know, this is the end of the letter. It's connected. And so, will they respond? Some obviously have already repented, but will the others repent? Jesus said his sheep hear his voice. The children of God obey the voice of the Father. Not perfectly, but that is the direction of their life. They don't run from his commands. And so here are commands. Here's a series of admonitions, five commands given in quick succession. Rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. The second of these, be made complete, has a connection back to verse 9 where Paul said, We rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. Because of that connection, MacArthur says that this particular admonition, the second one, is the key to understanding this verse. And he sees... That kind of is the central command and the others is supporting. And I'm going to follow that as we look at this tonight. So he says, be made complete. And you may think of that in terms of maturity. Of growing into what you should be. A complete man, a complete woman. In this sense, a a complete Christian man or woman. The Corinthians were certainly an immature bunch. Paul had pointed that out in his first letter to them. And so you could think of this command as a command to grow up into what you should be. Leave behind the childish immaturity that has characterized you and grow up. In this context, be made complete does not have the idea of adding things that that are missing. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that just aren't there and you there's a a lack. But rather, it is the idea of putting into order things that are out of order. So the components are there, but they're not there to the degree that they should be. There's a disorder about the life. It is an adjusting of things that are out of adjustment. 
You might think of a, an instrument that's out of tune. It's not right. Uh, the kids are trying to learn the guitar. And sometimes it, it gets out of tune or they get it out of tune. I'm not sure which. Sometimes I think they get it out of tune because it's so far out of tune. And so they try to play a chord and it just, you know, it's not quite right. And they bring it. Can you, put this, can you get this back in tune? And, uh, and it just sounds better, you know, <laughs> once it's in tune. It's not right. It needs to be tuned. Here's a life that needs to be tuned. It needs to be in order. The word is used in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 21 of fishermen mending their nets. This idea of completing them. They're mending them. They're, they're putting the nets in order and readying them for work. And so the exhortation to the Corinthians is to mend their ways. Straighten up and restore harmony among themselves. Because of this, the ESV translates this aim for restoration. This is a command to pursue. It's something to, to work at diligently. And surely as we can all recognize as we grow in grace, we must constantly reevaluate ourselves and put ourselves in order because we tend to, um, you know, just kind of through attrition, um, find our behavior not where it ought to be and having to be brought back into line with Scripture. If we're not careful, our thinking gets skewed and we have to bring it back. There are relationships that get out of order and have to be restored. We have to constantly check ourselves or in the language of verse 5 here in this chapter, test yourselves. We have to do this because of sin that we deal with constantly. But also just because of drift. D.A. Carson said, people do not drift towards holiness. I think you would all have to agree his statement is true. He goes on and says, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. Prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. We drift in the wrong direction and because of that we need what he called here a grace-driven effort. And that's what Paul's calling for here. It's a command. There's effort. You must put this in order. Be made complete. But it is a passive. There's something being done. You need to be made complete. God has to do this. And if God is not at work, all of your effort, all of your might, all of your determination will not result in you being made complete. You can't get it in order if God isn't at work also. But to the Christian, because he is at work, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
be made complete. Towards this end of getting our spiritual houses in order, there are these four supporting commands. The first of them, which is the first command in the verse, is rejoice. Now, if you're reading the New King James, the King James, it says farewell. That's because the word rejoice was often used as a greeting. Kind of like shalom, peace. In the Christian church, rejoice was used as a greeting. Um, And we see this in several places, but let me point to one. In Matthew 28, verse 9, Jesus met them and greeted them. Jesus rejoiced them. I think rejoice is the better understanding of the word here rather than the greeting. While it is used as a greeting or kind of like shalom, hello or goodbye, we find it more often in the New Testament as the front end, the hello, not the goodbye. And in verses 12 and 13 where Paul speaks of greeting, he uses a completely different word. It is a command and so, I'm not sure how he would use the imperative as, you know, like, is he yelling at him goodbye? <laughs> so I think rejoice is the better word here. Rejoice. Christians are to be characterized by joy. Really, to be a joyless Christian is a contradiction of terms. Joy is, after all, one of the fruits produced in the life of the Christian by the Holy Spirit. Listen to some of these verses. We've been commanded, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Philippians 2.18, You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Philippians 2.28 I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Philippians 3.1 Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always. 1 Peter 4.13 But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. John 15.11 Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John 16.22 Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. John 17, 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Scripture describes the joy of the believers as great joy, 
as abundant joy, as overflowing joy, as an animated joy, as an inexpressible joy, and as a joy that's full of awe. So to lack this joy is to be out of sorts, out of order. And if we would have a life that is in order, there should be joy. If you would be a complete Christian, then you'll be a rejoicing Christian. Now that does not mean there are never any sorrows. If you've lived very long at all, you know that. And I'm not saying that. There's no sorrow. But many of us have learned that even in terrible sorrow, there can also be joy. It is a joy that flows from the unshakable confidence that God is in control of every aspect of your life for your good, His child. Many of you are familiar with John Patton. If you're not, I recommend him to you. Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. And within months of arriving there, his wife and son had died and he lived a, a, quite an adventure. I don't know if he would have called it an adventure, but <laughs> we read it and it sounds like uh, quite an adventure. Once he was surrounded by a mob seeking his life and he spent the night in a tree on a limb above them praying. He wrote later that he could um, gladly spend more nights on a limb like that if he would know the presence and the nearness of God that he had known on that night. And he, toward the end of his life, quoted Jesus' words saying, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then said, Precious promise. How often I adore Jesus for it and rejoice in it. Blessed be His name. He endured immense suffering. And He rejoiced. The second of these commands, supporting commands, we'll say it that way, I guess, is be comforted. This could also be translated, be exhorted. It's used that way in a number of places. For instance, in Acts 2.40, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Or in 1 Corinthians 1.10, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. If that's what Paul is saying here, then the command to be exhorted is in a sense a command to submit to the exhortation. Submit to the authoritative things that have been said in this letter to them. Now, what kind of things have they been exhorted to do? Which, you know, by obeying, they would be comforted. What kind of things have they been exhorted to do? What do they need to submit themselves to? Well, in chapter 2 and verse 8, they were told to reaffirm their love to the, the wrongdoer who is now penitent. In chapter 6 and verse 1, they were told not to receive the grace of God in vain. Later in that chapter and into verse 1 of chapter 7, they were told to, to break, make a, a decisive break 
with idolatrous associations. In chapter 8, they're to give a warm reception to the delegates that are being sent to them to help with that offering. In chapters 8 and 9, give cheerfully. And throughout the letter, and especially in these last three chapters, four chapters, repent and alter your attitude toward Paul. These are things that they must do if they would be made complete, have a life that's in order. So here, this is included in this list of commands. Now there's a way to submit to God that's honoring to Him. And there's a way to do it that's dishonoring. A.W. Pink writes, There is a sulking submission And there's a cheerful submission. I would imagine every one of us have been sulkingly submissive at some times and cheerfully submissive at some times. And if you're a parent, you've seen it in your kids sometimes. There's a sulking submission and there is a cheerful submission. There is a fatalistic submission which takes this attitude. This is inevitable, so I must bow to it. And there's a thankful submission. Receiving with gratitude whatever God may be pleased to send to us. The psalmist expresses that kind of cheerful submissiveness in Psalm 1971. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Do you tend to sulk in your obedience to God? Or are you cheerful in your obedience to God? Surely you understand that one is honoring to God and one is not. If you would obey the command to to live an orderly life, then it will require a cheerful submissiveness. Not the sulking one, or not the, you'll bow to the inevitable. (laughs) May as well. Third, be like-minded. Or think the same thing. Have the same convictions. This is a, a summons to agree with each other in the Lord. It's what he's expressed earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. There again is that be made complete, this idea of getting things in order and of being in agreement, having no divisions. In chapter 2 and verse 16 of 1 Corinthians, for he... For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And that's what he's calling them to do. Together to have the mind of Christ. Again, he's writing this because there's dissension and strife within the body. It remains a problem. Particularly with the unrepentant minority. He had expressed this in chapter 12 and verse 20 of 2 Corinthians. I'm afraid that perhaps when I come... I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. 
that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that's still going to be going on when I get there. So repent before I get there. Paul calls for a unity around the truth of God. And it's not a a superficial truce built around the idea that doctrine divides and everyone's opinion is valid. It's not agreeing to disagree in essential matters so we we can get some things done. It is, as Jude writes, an earnest contending for the faith and agreeing around truth. In Philippians 1.27, Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what he wants for the Corinthians also. That you will with one mind strive together for the faith of the gospel. In Ephesians 4, 13, as he talks about growing up into the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He talks about how this this working together of the body... uh, Occurs until we all attain to the unity of the faith. In Romans 15 verses 4 through 6. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God grant you this unity so that you can glorify Him with one voice. The church must not downplay the truth, must not downplay doctrine. The church is the household of God. It is the pillar and support of the truth. And he's addressing this to brothers and sisters. People he hopes are brothers and sisters. And the evidence that they are brothers and sisters is that they will heed God's commands. Including this one. Here's a church that's presently divided. Paul Insist that they be of one mind around the truth. To get past whatever minor things would cause them division. To get past good intentions to what is real and substantial. And to agree around the truth. Fourth, he says live in peace. Live in peace. In Romans 14, 19, he says, We pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. The peace that they need will be a peace that must be pursued. It's not automatic. Although agreeing around central truth should go a long ways towards making that peace, there's still differences in personality and opinions around lesser matters And peace will have to be pursued. But it must be pursued. 
Here, again, is one of the ingredients to an orderly life. Pursue peace. Live in peace. In 1 Thessalonians 5.13, Paul said, Live in peace with one another. To the body. Live in peace with one another. And then even beyond the body... In Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, but especially with the body. Well, here are five commands. Be made complete, put your life in order, and four supporting commands. All five of these imperatives are in the present tense. They all are, are ongoing pursuits. None of them are, you know, kind of a one and done thing. I did it one time and, and so I, it's complete. It's finished. These are characteristics of the Christian life that must be cultivated. It will require exertion. They're commands to be obeyed. They will also require the grace of God. But he has given that in abundance. Well, those are Paul's admonitions. In verses 12 and 13, we have a couple of greetings. How would you know if the commands of verse 11 were really followed, really embraced? Not, not the, um, you know, the, the kind of sulking obedience, submission, but cheerfully embraced. Well, if they're really embracing these things and pursuing these things, then their hearts should be aflame with love to God. And the evidence of that would be that they are really loving towards their brothers and sisters. And so Paul calls them to a public display of affection. (laughs) Greet one another with a holy kiss. This isn't a handshake. He's calling them for more than a handshake. He's calling them to express affection to one another in a way that goes beyond cultural norms. John MacArthur says that in Paul's day and culture, a kiss was typically a cheek-to-cheek embrace between members of the same sex. And even that was a very formal thing or within families. What Paul commands is more than that. Um, another commentator, and I forgot to write his name down. His last name is Garland. I can't remember his first name. He says, a holy kiss represents something more than a social custom. It is a sign of mutual fellowship among persons of mixed social background, nationality, race, and gender who are joined together as a new family in Christ. This is a kiss between family members. Sometimes we've had conversations with our boys, you know, keep your kisses within the family when they were smaller. (laughs) Keep your kisses in family. Well, Paul's saying, this is family. And he says it in a way that, that... 
as far as I can tell in the reading I've done, goes beyond anything that was happening in his day. And so across socioeconomic backgrounds, where that would not have occurred, in the church of God, that occurs. Now, it's nothing erotic. It's not, a, from what I can gather, not a lip-to-lip kind of embrace. It was, you know, cheek-to-cheek. But the idea was, again, a real sign of brotherly affection, sisterly affection. We are family members. Jesus commanded that believers love one another. That kind of love certainly involves sacrificial service, caring for the needs of others, ministering to others. But it goes beyond that. It is affection for others. You can minister to the needs of others and not really be affectionate toward them. You know, there are people in Amory running chainsaws, and I'm glad. But you can do that and have no real heart for anybody in Amory. I mean, you could do it because someone's telling you what a great job you're doing running a chainsaw and props to you. And it's all about self. But Jesus calls us to something beyond just service to others. He calls us to actually love our brothers and sisters. As the Corinthians are to be made complete, set in order, the command is not to go through the motions. You know, just get along. Go along to get along. It's to actually love each other. Actually care for each other. And this holy kiss was a physical manifestation of that affectionate reality. Now, you'll notice Paul does not command every church to do that. I think the, importance, the important thing is, is the caring and loving each other. Here, where the church was so divided, he commands them, demonstrate it. In this physical way that's obvious. Then in verse 13, he says, all the saints greet you. This is probably all the saints in Macedonia from where he's writing. Here are people outside of Corinth who are concerned about you, who care about you, and they send their greetings to you. They're not right there. They can't give a holy kiss, (laughs) but they do send their greetings. They love you. And it's a good reminder, I think, to us that there's a world outside of these walls of churches and we can be concerned and love the work of the Lord in other places. And then the benediction. Verse. Actually, there's, I think, two benedictions. There's one at the end of verse 11. Have you ever heard of a, you know, you've seen a pilot or, or read about a pilot or whatever doing kind of a touch and go landing? So it's like they're going to come in and land and they, they touch the runway and they take off again. And they circle the airport. Sometimes preachers are accused of this. You know, we're, we're coming in for a landing, a conclusion, and they take off and go again and finally conclude. I think Paul kind of does that here. Verse 11 ends with, and the God of love and peace will be with you, which sounds kind of like a benediction. Then he does, he has more information to share with them. And then in verse 14, another benediction. In verse 11, 
He speaks of, again, um, the God of love and peace will be with you. Just as a piece of information for you, I guess, this is the only place in the scripture where you see the words, the God of love. I mean, obviously, he is the God of love. He's a loving God. He's a God who loves. But it's the only place you see that kind of as a title, the God of love. The God of love and the God of peace will be with you. These are both divine attributes, but they're also divine gifts. This is clearly expressed of peace, but it's also certainly true of love. We love because He first loved us. But of peace, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. So, love and peace, which belong to God, are also gifts from God given to you. With Himself. It's not just that He will give you love and peace. But the the God of love and peace will be with you all. Now notice the connection with verse 11. The rest of verse 11. You have those five commands or those five admonitions. And the God of love and peace will be with you all. It's tied to that in some way. Not, I don't think, as a reward... In some ways, it, it presupposes the five admonitions. It is the work of God in you that can make it possible for you to keep the five admonitions. But if you want the continued experience of God's love and peace, then the five admonitions are necessary. It's not that God is absent unless you do these five things. God's there regardless, right? God's everywhere. But if you would enjoy His love... If you would enjoy His peace, then you can't live at odds with Him and have this life that's spiritually disordered. And so, be made complete. Order your life. And enjoy the nearness of God, His love, His peace. This does not suggest that only perfect people or perfect churches enjoy God's blessing or God's love and peace. There are no perfect people or churches. And we are not perfect people. And we're not a perfect church. But are we a people and are we a church that will pursue completeness? Then in verse 14... Paul brings his letter to a close with the most Trinitarian benediction in all of Scripture. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In verse 14, God is obviously a reference to the Father. So you have Father, Son, and Spirit there. This... Um, is an explicitly Trinitarian benediction. And so it reflects a truth that's central, and yet it is not a theological treatise. He doesn't explain all that. He kind of assumes it. He assumes that the Corinthians understand that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all 
God. One God, three persons. And here are blessings flowing from each person of the triune Godhead. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace that's seen in so many ways, but chiefly in His dying for sins so that we might have salvation. As Paul concludes with that, and this at the end of his, this warning to the unrepentant, and then calling them brethren, hoping that they are. If they are, what a reminder. The grace of the Lord Jesus. Grace that overflows. Grace that is abundant. Grace that makes us rich. Not with the wealth that the Corinthians were concerned about, but with something so much better. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul had previously written, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might be made rich. As a consequence of knowing This grace, there came the knowledge of the love of God, which is seen in the death of His Son. Romans 5, 8, God shows His love for us and that while we were were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The hymn writer wrote, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. The consequence of Christ's grace and God's love is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is ours as a blessing of the new covenant. A new covenant, Paul wrote in chapter 3 and verse 6. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. God has poured out His Holy Spirit upon us. And the result is a unity of fellowship. John later testified in 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. A fellowship made possible by the the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, but also by the giving of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Spirit includes fellowship with the Father And the Son, it's a Trinitarian fellowship. It's also a fellowship with others who share in that fellowship. 
Well, this benediction falls on us in a wonderfully refreshing way. Grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. Grace that's exponential. Love. The love of God. Infinite. Incomparable. Unending. Fellowship. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. A fellowship with heaven itself. What else could we ask for?